Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 166 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is J. Michael Straczynski, one of the most popular science fiction writers in Hollywood. He is best known as the creator of the TV show Babylon 5, for which he wrote almost 100 scripts, and he also has countless other writing credits for various TV shows, comic books, feature films, cartoons, books, and articles. Together with the Wachowskis, he co-created the Netflix original series Sense8, which we reviewed in episode 157, and which was just renewed for a second season. And now, here's our interview with J. Michael Straczynski. All right, so we're here with J. Michael Straczynski. Welcome to the show. Howdy, thank you. So you said that as a child you would steal science fiction books and read them and then bring them back? Tell us about that. Well, um, back when I was a kid, libraries tended not to stock a lot of science fiction. They did you know, the few necessary things they had to do, like 1984, A Brave New World, a couple of Bradburys. But to find anything with more meat to it, you really had to go somewhere else. They didn't consider um, science fiction to be literature. Like, uh, when I worked at a library when I was in my teens, um, I found, you know, some areas of the mainstream section that had science fiction books and some didn't. I said, why, why 1984? So, well, that's, that's a good book. The rest of science fiction is not literature. So the limit, the, the options I had for finding science fiction books were limited. But when I was a kid living in Newark, I was like, I don't know, 12 or so. Um, the liquor stores and corner stores had, you know, sections where they sold, uh, periodic books on the spinner racks. It was romance books and crime books and science fiction books by, you know, the best lights of the time that came out from very small publishers. And I didn't have money to afford them, to buy them. So what I would do is I would figure out where the uh, mirrors were positioned so that I could create a blind spot. And what I would do is I would go in after making the blind spot, pick out one or two books, usually looking for ones that had the word Hugo winner on it put it in my notebook or a pocket, buy a candy bar you know, at most, walk out, read it at home in such a way that I would not break the spine. I wouldn't want to hurt the book. Finish it up, then put my school books on top of it to flatten it back out again, then bring it back to the store and put it back in the spinner rack and take the next one. It became my library. My only concern was that I would get caught putting them back, because who would ever believe I was trying to put the books back? <laughs> I just think it's so interesting that you were so scrupulously honest as a 12-year-old. Do you think you were just naturally an honest person, or did you absorb some sort of lesson somewhere about that? Well, it was a number of things. It was, uh, I think that, you know, certainly um, comic books gave me a sense of morality. Um, I, I always kind of looked at Superman as a role model for me, uh, and how he dealt with the world, with people, and I, I kind of bought into that sense of morality. Plus, my father was a, a, a thief and a crook and a terrible human being. And I thought I would always go in the opposite direction from him. And he would have kept the books. I even a moment of hesitation. He would have kept them. So if he would have kept them, then I had to be sure to return them. Right. Um, would he have destroyed them? Because I heard you say that he actually tore up your comic book collection at one point. Yeah, he was a pretty evil guy. And there were a few times that I stood up to him, and my grades weren't great because um, we moved every six to eight months, sometimes sooner, 
when I was a kid, I went to, uh, we moved 21, 21 times in our first 17 years. I went to, for the first like 10 years of my life, a different school every year. So my grades were never great. Um, he was always looking for an excuse for that. And um, it was one particular time I had mouthed off to him when I probably should not have done so. And he thought, I know what your problem is. And he pulled this box up that I kept my comics in. And, and, and I had been, a, even though I was poor and really had to sort of trade to get what I wanted, um, I had a pretty good collection. I kept my comics in pristine condition. I had a complete run of, of X-Men from the first issue from The Amazing Thor, from first Fantastic Four, all these books, you know, complete runs. The first appearance of Spider-Man and Amazing Fantasy, books that now would be like $100,000 in value. I kept in a box with a circle on the outside that written inside the circle Joe's comics. And as I sat there at the table, he pulled the box out put the comics in front of me and began just tearing them up. And when he was done, all that was up with it was the box with uh, the word Joe's Comics on the outside, which is why later on I named my company Joe's Comics and put the symbol of that circle with my name in it. So, um, yeah, he was, he, in later years, he would lament the fact that he'd done it only because, you know, he could have gotten the money for it. But at the time, it was, I, no, one, no one knew they had value, but they had value to me on an emotional basis. And he wanted to hurt me, so that's what he did. Wow, yeah. But so, I mean, so you're obviously a, like a hardcore science fiction fan. You've read all these books. And then you end up in Hollywood, where my impression is that people don't read a lot of science fiction novels. Um, is, is that true? Like, what was it like for you showing up there? Did you feel out of place, or did you connect with other people who were really interested in reading science fiction? I think that science fiction now is much more of um, a literature of Hollywood than it was when I got here. Um, Back then, there was a lot of suits who were kind of afraid of science fiction because they didn't know what it was. But it's worth pointing out that when I first came to L.A., I really came here in the um, uh, persona of a journalist. I had been working in San Diego for San Diego Magazine, the San Diego Reader, um, the L.A. Times San Diego Bureau. And I got the opportunity to come up to come up to Los Angeles when I got my first contract for a book. So for the first, I guess, three or four years I was here, I was primarily working as a, as a reporter. I, I knew a number of television writers, most of them in animation. Um, and they were like in the science fiction genre. And I was a fan of the genre. I was in Tower 25. I went to the bookstore signings like that with science fiction writers, but I wasn't really living in that world uh, until I, I sold a couple of short stories here and there and then um, got into animation. If there's any one significant thing I would point about that time versus now, it's that when I came up to LA, I knew about, about 20 friends who were television writers, primarily working in the science fiction genre. And, uh, it is worth pointing out that virtually all of them, I don't say all, but virtually all of them are no longer writing in television. Um, what happens sometimes with writers in any genre is that they define themselves to death. They say, this is what I do. This is the kind of story that I tell. This is how I write. And that's great as long as the market keeps buying that. When the market shifts, if you don't shift with it, at least in terms of learning new ideas, new technologies, being open and responsive to the changes in society, you get left behind. And a lot of the writers who I knew when I got here, who were, when I sold my first time, they just kept patting me on the head like, well, that's very cute. 
um, are now no longer working. And I think it just points to the importance of staying fresh and current as a writer and, and not becoming complacent. Complacency is what kills careers faster than almost anything. Yeah. Well, and so, yeah, so you mentioned that you started out in animation, and I was just looking over your the things you worked on. You worked on a lot of my favorite cartoons as a kid, He-Man and Jace and the Wheeled Warriors and the real Ghostbusters. So <laughs> well, I liked them when I was a kid. Um, but it, it was funny because I actually I still think the real Ghostbusters is a pretty well written show, and I went back and watched it recently, and I was noticing that, in addition to you, there was also Michael Reeves and David Gerald wrote episodes. These writers that I know um, from science fiction. Um, did you meet a lot of other science fiction writers uh, working in the animation departments? Yeah. Um, what was good about the show is that it was kind of a groundbreaker. Uh, DC Entertainment (DIC) um, had done a number of shows, but until that one, they primarily did gang credits. Um, they put all the writers' credits at the back of an episode in, in a group, so you never actually knew who wrote what. And I said, look, you know, I can get and bring in writers who are actually good science fiction writers, people who know their stuff, but they're not going to settle for, you know, a gang credit in the back of the episode. They're going to want to have their names up front where they quite frankly belong. And I was able to use that um, pressure so I can bring in David Gerald, I can bring in this person over here to pry loose the single credit process. And that kind of, you know, once we did it, then other shows were able to do it as well. So for me, it was important not just to change the credit situation, but also to bring in writers who knew the language of science fiction and the, liter and, and the language of fantasy and horror because I wanted this not to be just a kid show. I wanted it to really delve into the, the, the history and the language and the literature of science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Uh, and because of that, this show had a maturity to it that you know, with, with some glitches here and there persists and is still appreciable now. Yeah, as I said, I mean, I, thought, I think it's really a terrific show. Um, and also around some, somewhere in there, you met Harlan Ellison, or you, I guess you gave him a phone call. Uh, tell us about that. That happened way earlier. When I was um, still living in San Diego, um, I had been writing and selling things for a while, and then I hit this stretch, a bad patch, where I wasn't selling anything. And I didn't realize at the time that every writer goes through a series of plateaus where you know you aren't writing where you should be writing, but you can't write at the level you were, and everything that you write in between just explodes in front of you and won't sell. Um, and I was going through a plateau at the time, didn't understand it, didn't know it. And so I was growing up as, as someone who wanted to be a writer, the introductions of Harlan Ellison did to his stories really kind of sustained me. I, I was a street rat. I grew up a street rat. I was, I come from nothing. My family has no connection to, to literature or writing. And in his introductions, I found a kindred spirit. You know, Harlan also was a street rat. He, he ran, run with gangs. He, um, was considered, you know, trouble. And I always took great comfort from him. So I hit my, this bad patch where I wasn't selling anything. I remember that in one of his introductions, he had given his phone number. Uh, I wonder if that's real, thought I. Let's find out. So I dialed the number and waited, and sure enough, it began to ring. And after about two rings, it was a click, and I heard, yeah. Oh, crap. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, is this is 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 this Harlan Harlan, Harlan Ellison? Said I. Yeah. What do you want? Said he. 
Well, my 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 name my my my, my name is Joe Damring for the whole thing, and I'm I'm a writer and my stuff isn't selling. And I thought you might have some advice, which is the stupidest thing to ask any writer because it's, there is no good answer to that question. It's like saying to someone, you know, "What are you doing with my wife?" There is no good answer to that question. So he says on the phone, "Make it this straight: you're writing stuff, it's not selling. Is that it?" I says, "Yes." All right. Here's what you do. If it's not selling, it's shit. My advice to you, stop writing shit. Thank you, Mr. Ellison. I, I appreciate that. I, thank you. And, I, and he hung up. And I was like, oh, God. Um, years later, we, we met over a number of, uh, I got to L.A., and we met in bits and pieces, first two hours, 25, and some of his signings, and gradually got to know him. And eventually, we became friends. And um, I finally I, I reminded him years afterward of that conversation. And uh, he said, you know, he remembered the, his part of it. and said, were, were you offended? And I said, um, had you been wrong, I would have been offended. But he wasn't. I was, I was writing less than I should have been writing. So I was in a plateau at the time. Right, right. And I know, like, another show you worked on that I, I really loved as a kid was The New Twilight Zone that uh, Harlan wrote for, along with a bunch of other you know, big science fiction authors. Did you bring all those people onto the onto that show? No, um, there there was two iterations of that. There was the CBS version that was done that Harlan worked on, and when they finished up that version of it, they wanted to do um, I think it was like uh, thirty additional half hours direct for syndication in order to fill up the the package. Back then, you needed to have at least ninety episodes to syndicate. They wanted to do thirty more, so. Um, that crowd had, for the most part, moved on and chose really not to be involved with uh, our version, even though I thought, in many ways, we were kind of more back to Rod's morality fables. So I, I did one episode for the network version before this, and I was told flat out by Phil DeGuerre that we're not trying to do morality tales here. We're not trying to do Rod's story. We're anything edgy and dark, and I'm thinking, well, then why are you calling it Twilight Zone? <laughs> So when we did our version, um, we kind of, you know, I, I know they always get upset when I say this, but look, I'm just repeating back what I was told flat out, as they said, flat out in interviews. We kind of went back more toward that morality fable point of view, and a lot of them opted not to really come and play with us. The only one I think we did from anyone there, we had a, a copy of Alan Brennert's um, the adaptation of The Cold Equation, which we, which we produced. But otherwise, it was uh, just other writers who came in, and um, many of them quite new, actually, to, to work with us. Well, because I know George R. R. Martin worked on the show, I think probably on the earlier iteration, but I was just curious if you had uh, worked with him at all? Uh, no, no. Um, when I first um, sold an episode to um, the network version of Twilight Zone, I heard that, that George actually kind of was trying to discourage them from buying my script because. I think he kind of enjoyed being the, the local um, resident uh, science fiction representative after Harlan left. I don't know that for a fact. That's just what I was told. Um, but regardless, uh, I really had nothing to do with him beyond that on, on, on the first version and nothing to do with my version. Huh. Wow. Okay. Um, and so then obviously you worked on Babylon 5 or you launched Babylon 5. And it's famous for creating this idea of the five-season arc. 
And it seems like it's really hard just to get a science fiction show made in Hollywood at all. Could you talk about how you came up with the idea of doing this five-season arc and what made it feasible for you to do that? Bear in mind, I, I'm Russian. And Russians tell long stories. We don't know how to tell a short story, give a short answer to a question, as you've already seen so far in this conversation. <laughs> um, and it always frustrated me that having grown up reading uh, the sagas, Lord of the Rings saga, the childhood's end, you know, all these other great science fiction and fantasy sagas that nowhere in television did you find something of, of parallel construction. And when I came up with the storyline for Babylon 5 and exploded in my head, it came in as a saga, not as an episode or a series of episodes. And back then, um, episodic science fiction was all there was, and, and I also applied it to most television as well. No one had ever done a story that said, look, we're going to do it five years, beginning, middle, and end, and out with every season based on a section of a book in the sense of novels, but along the lines of introduction, rising action, complication, climax, and denouement. And each season would parallel one of those. Um, and when I went around to talk about this, I was told repeatedly, that's not going to fly. People haven't got the attention span for it. Uh, back then, all science fiction hit the reset button at the end of the episode. But I knew that this would work, and this would eventually um, find its way. Whether I did it or somebody else did, assume that somebody was going to say, let's do a multi-year arc and end it here. It wasn't until um, Chris Craft Television came on at Warner's to make the deal that we finally were able to get this thing on the air. Um, and even then, people kept saying, you know, look, other than Star Trek, no space-based science fiction series, American show at least, had gone more than three seasons in 25 years. What makes you think you're going to do it? I tell them, I'm on a mission from God, motherfucker, all right? <laughs> and we got it, and, and and we were the first show to start that process. And the fun thing has been seeing that spread over the subsequent years. And when, when Damon Lindelof came on to develop Lost, he said straight up you know, to me, we want to sort of uh, pattern this after the five-year arc that you had in Babylon 5. And Battlestar did a similar thing and began spreading out from there until now it's become the thing. Um, at least in terms of the attempt, I, I had a meeting at a network a couple of years ago where um, I was talking about a show I wanted to do with a five-year arc and the main guy in the room there from the network said, look, we have people coming in all the time saying we want to do a five-year arc. They can never really pull it off successfully. What makes you think you could do it? I invented it, all right? (laughs) Yeah, and so one thing that's interesting about Babylon 5 that I've seen a lot of people talking about is that you had the idea of gay marriage as just an ordinary fact of life. Um, Could you talk about like how it came about that you wrote that into the story, and did you get any pushback on that? Surprisingly, no pushback. Um, they, They are always more open to doing that in a science fiction context rather than a mainstream context, which they were back then. Uh, my sense was that if we hit a point where we are actually having uh, interaction with alien civilizations, um, the differences between ourselves become far less important. Uh, gender, sexuality, ethnic background, Suddenly, those those pale into the background when you're sitting across from something with fangs and fur and three heads. You know? um, and I thought, well, that being the case, then you know, gay marriage shouldn't even be an issue. 
So we had Franklin and Marcus going off to Mars. We had them as a married gay couple as their cover. And no one ever said boo about the, the, the social aspects of this. The personal aspects of these two individuals in this alleged marriage um, was room for humor this, exactly the same way that you know a male-female couple who are very different would be, be treated. But the actual marriage part, no one thought two things about it. And um, that, that, I think is what will be the case if we ever should come across other civilizations. This kind of stuff will be at all important anymore. Right, right. Did you like what sort of reactions did you get when that aired? Did did you get positive and or negative responses from viewers? A lot of positive, almost no negative. They just bought it within the context, they, and those who really perceived it, we didn't make a big deal out of it. It was just there, um, and those people who who saw it responded for the most part really very positively. It's, it's great and. Most people just accepted it as context and didn't and let it and it roll right off of them. Wow, that's great. And then, so like when you're looking back on Babylon Five now, what would you say are some of the big lessons that you drew from that experience that you would apply to you know uh, television shows that you're making now? Because no one had ever done it before, I was kind of making up the structure as I went. And now, looking back, if I were to do it again, if I knew I had those five years. There are certain elements that I would adjust that would have put more visible um, arcs up into the first season. Um, most of the stuff that, that like writers talk to each other kind of stuff, that it would make terribly boring radio or podcast. But suffice to say, it, it, whenever you write something, you learn the lessons that, that thing has to teach you. That's why I always, a lot of people who want to be writers who spend you know years working on one script or one book. I tell them you're doing this wrong. You need to finish that, whatever it is, and move on to the next one and write that and write the next one and then they went on to that. Because if you only write one thing, you only learn the lessons that one thing has to teach you. As a writer, your job is to acquire tools in your toolbox that will allow you to write more and um, more complex things. And every time you write a story or a script, or whatever, you, you acquire another tool for your toolbox. So. For me, that show provided a lot of tools in my toolbox. Can I say specifically, you know, this tool taught me this? No. But in the aggregate, I learned a lot of lessons from that that were able to then feed into my work now. Okay, so then I saw you give an interview a couple of years ago where you were you were asked about collaborating on screenplays, and you said, I tend to personally avoid it only because gunfire erupts at some point. I don't play well with others. And so I thought, given that, it was interesting that you decided to collaborate with the Wachowskis on this new show, Sense8. So I was just wondering, well, what made you want to collaborate this time, and how long do you think it will be before gunfire erupts? Well, fortunately, we are, our temperaments are very much the same. In many respects, our interests are social perspectives are very much in, in sync with each other. Um, I, I was hesitant going in. I was, you know, was, who knows it's going to work out. But to dig more deeply into the, the, the root of what you asked, what that question was about was collaborating in the script with someone. So you're both in the same room writing something versus what we did on Sensate, which was they would write two scripts They'd hand them off to me. I would read them, revise them, make changes. I would write the next two scripts, fire it back to them. They would read, revise, check, then 
right there in the next two scripts, and we go back and forth. And because we were both writing and re- rewriting each other, we ended up sharing credit on everything versus the three of us sitting in a room actually writing scripts together. We did sit together for months um, to work out the structure of the show where we'd sit there just day after day after day talking about the characters and talking about where they were going and what they wanted and what they believed in and what they were afraid of and what they hoped to achieve. But when the actual writing started, we went off to our separate corners of the ring and did our thing. So um, this season, this is more of a direct writing with all, all of us in the room together doing the actual script writing. So that, that should be interesting. And I, I, I think there probably will not be gunfire, <laughs> but you never know. <laughs> I mean, would you say that, that you focus on a particular area more than they do, like character or action or setting or dialogue, anything like that? If I had to sort of break it down very um, mechanically, they're terrific on action, really good on plot, um, structure sometimes. I think they, they, they struggle with it a little bit. Um, and character, they're also good at. Um, in my case, I'm, I'm, I'm a structural demon. I just, I, 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 I lock on to structure like nobody's business. I'm soft on plot. I, I, I love action, but I can't often make it work on a script as well as I would like to. And I'm also very good, like they are good. I'm also good on character. So if you take like the two keys and put them side by side, they mesh really well. Their strengths make up for my weaknesses and my strengths make up for whatever they're still working on. So it was a very good uh, combination. Did the shape of the story change, like from the earliest concept to the final version, were there any major changes you made along the way in how the story turned out? Whenever you write something for the first time, you're really telling the story to yourself. And we did a couple of versions early on that were um, us sort of feeling our way through the story and through the world, and there was more of whispers involved. Um, one sense it was in actually Iraq, and it was a very different kind of a story that then we thought, okay, now we did that version of it just for ourselves. Is that what we actually wanted? tell the story about and do we want to just like a other show cut to the bad guys from time to time or do we want to stay in subjective camera and that became really kind of the um the anchor for all the subsequent writing iterations we did uh if you look at the show after the first opening sequence where the sensates are born from that moment onward, you never leave the point of view of one of our sensei. The entire story is told from their perspective. Usually, in any kind of a science fiction show, you can cut away from your good guys to see what the bad guys are doing. And along the way, you can get information from those people or the characters that helps you move the plot along. But because our characters didn't know what the hell was happening to them, and we couldn't cut away, we realized that we're going to stick the audience in that same position that uh, the characters and the audience will learn what's happening at the same time, which is a very risky proposition, particularly because science fiction shows tend to be very much oriented on the plot, the gimmick, the gadget, you know, the, the mission. And that's all spelled out pretty quickly early on in the process. Here you wouldn't find out what that was all about for several episodes. So it was a calculated risk, but we figured the Netflix model lets us do that. And the audience is hip enough and strong enough to say, okay, we're going to wait for a while to figure this out as we go. Um, because the, the, we've shot it really kind of a 12 hour movie. 
and the first four hours of the first act and next to the second act and last four hours of the last act. And if you were in a movie theater and you were, say, 20 minutes into the first act of a mystery, you wouldn't expect to have all the information needed to figure it out. So we figured, well, we'll, we'll use that same uh, approach to writing the show and just assume it's our first act and people will stick around or they won't. And happily, they did. So that became, over time, the, the change from the earlier drafts to what we ended up with. So when you're setting a story in places like India and Kenya and South Korea, how familiar were you with those countries going in? Or did you have to do a lot of research or travel to be able to set the storylines there? Uh, we did a buttload of research on, on each area. Um, and when we were doing our location scouting, we made it a point to sit down with people there and talk about their life and their work. When we were um, in in India, in Mumbai, we would sit down with um, people who ran restaurants. One of our characters is the daughter of a guy who runs a restaurant. And say to them, what, what's your work? Like, how do you do it? You know, what's your attitude? And just, sort of just get to know them. And that would feed into the story. So we're, and, and fortunately, um, Tom Tickford has shot previously in Nairobi quite a bit. Um, and his experience there and let him direct those sequences with a certain degree of verisimilitude. Uh, the, the W's had lived in Berlin for many years. I had visited there numerous times and worked on projects there. Um, so we really had kind of had a fairly good foundation for things, but we then took advantage of the location scouting process to really immerse ourselves so that we could make the revisions of the script that much more authentic. And, and the cool thing about this is as we were starting prep, we had a meeting up in San Francisco with the guy who was the um, production coordinator assigned to us from the uh, company in India that had been working with us. And he said, we're all looking forward to you shooting this show there because he said, as a rule, we have two kinds of productions happening in Mumbai. The first is our own stories, our own movies about us and our culture and our language and our history, our religion, that we make for ourselves and never really get much release in the Western world. The other kind we make are Western stories set against an Indian backdrop. It's not about us, it's about the Western story, and we're just the, the curtain hanging behind them. So this is the first Western show about us, about our language and our culture and our religion. And, it, and he did, we can't tell you how much that means to us. And, and for, for Lana and Andy and myself, that was a really great and very personal moment to have that kind of feedback to know we had done it right. Right. Well, and speaking of the religion, there's the subplot in India where there's the clash between the more modern-oriented people and the more religious fundamental people. Is that inspired by some specific events that are have been happening in India? Actually, yeah, there was a um, uh, case about, God, was it three, four years ago, something like that, where there was a, a fellow trying to pass laws against um, kind of religious panhandling where they could you'd go in, they would do charms or they would do um, curses for you or this was providing kind of a, um, a fraudulent religious practice for money. And there was a gentleman who was fighting this and introduced a bill to stop this and he was assassinated much as, as um, our character's attack and sensei. So we kind of patterned that the arc of that story on, on this person. Huh. Wow, that's interesting. So, I mean, I I would guess that a lot of times the reason that there aren't stories made in Hollywood about people in India, set in India, is because they don't think it'll sell. Did you have any pushback from any, you know, money-making people uh, in terms of 
set, having those characters set in those locations? Zero. Um, because you know, we aren't dealing with movies, we're dealing with, with the television network, and Netflix really got behind the show and pretty the international aspect of it. Um, they are looking, certainly on their own, to expand their international horizons and broaden their, their opportunities. So they saw this as a net positive all around because it would bring in a wide range of, of viewers from around the world. And, and in point of fact, um, the show is sitting very high up among their titles in every market. A lot of their shows may do well domestically, but not necessarily have the same success overseas. But this is sitting on top of their titles in every market around the world, which shows that it was a, a pretty um, worthwhile gambit on their part. So, no, Netflix has never been anything but supportive. They never uh, questioned or stopped us from doing anything. Their main role as we went along was really to keep us on target. I think that on any big project, halfway through, everybody forgets what the hell they signed on to do in the first place. And their their task was to just look not just once in a while and say, well, you know, this is where you were going, just keeping you on track. And we would realize that what they were saying, and you were absolutely right. We would just keep going in the direction we were supposed to go in the first place. Yeah. Okay, I also wanted to ask you about, there was an article on io9, and the headline was, Sensate is the Philip K. Dick adaptation we always wanted. And when we discussed the show previously on this podcast, I said it was more, I thought to me, the Theodore Sturgeon adaptation we always wanted. But I was curious to get your opinion on that. Like, which science fiction books or authors do you think had the most influence on the show? Really, that, that's more of uh, almost like a fan point of view, because... Whenever something comes on, the first impulse is to compare it to something that went before. It's more what's like this and this and this. But that doesn't really involve the creative side of it. As we sat down to create the story, Philip Dick, you know, Ted Sturgeon, none of that was ever mentioned. There was a point of referencing that stuff. It really came down to, you know, who are these characters? What countries are they in? Um, what's their family background? What do they want to achieve for their lives? And what happens if they find themselves suddenly in each other's heads? So, I, I, that being said, obviously we all we all stand on the shoulders of giants, and there is a subconscious or cultural debt there. But in terms of specifically saying, we well, you know Ted Sturgeon did this, so we should do this, or Philip Dick did this, we should we should therefore do that. That never happened. Hmm. Okay. And then, what do you think about the critical reaction to the show overall? Because it seems like it was a little bit negative at first, and then the, as the show went on, the critics got more and more positive. Do you agree that that's what happens, and just what's your overall take on that? It's been kind of funny to watch it because it seems like there's two kinds of critical reactions. Um, those who didn't like the show and those who saw more than three episodes. <laughs> um, persistently and consistently, um, as critics and people got past the first three, um, they fell in love with the show. I think, in retrospect, I think they should have released the entire season to the critics, but that didn't happen. Um, th this also speaks, I think, to a, a maybe prejudice is the wrong word, but certainly a an inclination to view science fiction through a different lens than mainstream shows. If you look at series like, going back to The Sopranos or Boardwalk Empire or House of Cards, no one ever said of House of Cards episode three, when are they going to get to the point? Or what's the plot? No one ever said of Boardwalk Empire, what's the plot? Where's this going to go? You know, what's, what's, where's, where's, what's, their, what's their mission? What's their gimmick? But science fiction 
tends to be lumped in with those that must show their cards early on because traditionally had been about the mission to catch it, the, you know, the MacGuffin. Uh, and when we didn't show that, we, when we made a show about the journey rather than the mission, a lot of critics really kind of rebelled at that. Like we were being, some people said we were being too ambitious or we were, you know, thinking outside of what we should be as a science fiction show. And we were trying to say, no, we're, we're trying to change the definition of, of science fiction, how it's perceived on television. We're not trying to do a show about the gadget, the, the gimmick, the mission, the job. It's about these characters and their journey. And a lot of critics seem to feel that we were being presumptuous in doing so. Um, and our hope is that this will change the standard by which science fiction shows tend to be evaluated. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Were there any critics that you thought really got it or said something really astute that made you look at the show in a new way? Not that I can think of offhand, but that being said, uh, what's interesting is seeing there have been some critics who have come back and, and requested to do second reviews of the show to come back and say, actually, no, this is a pretty good show. <laughs> so really, I think the, the problem was just making those first three episodes available and not the rest of them. I think had more been seen, the initial reaction would have been much better. Yeah, yeah. How about uh, fan reaction? What Do any fan responses to the show really stick out in your mind? More the totality than the singularity of it. Um, when the show went up, I, I made a point to park myself on Twitter and just start watching the reactions. And it started off very slow. What's this thing? It just came up on my, my, my Netflix queue. What's this all about? And, of course, you can't jump ahead because they have to watch every episode so you're watching them watch it in real time and they watch the first one and they, well, I don't get it I don't understand what's going on and over the next several days I was watching and seeing the speed of the tweets increasing the uh, energetic positive responses increasing and more energetic and we were hitting a point finder after like about two three days I was logging or watching like 200 tweets a minute about the show and the remarkable is watching this thing take off in social media where suddenly it became a thing where if you weren't either watching it or talking about it or about to watch it you weren't hip and as someone who's never been hip his entire life that was pretty cool <laughs> um, so really it was that uh, word of mouth acceptance of the show that really drove it first with millennials and then spinning off of that uh, and suddenly it became, you know, a, a much bigger thing. And the sheer number of, of reviews and positive comments were just breathtaking. There's an old saying about critics when you get a questionable review, no one liked it but the audience. <laughs> and that's kind of the, the case here where it was the audience that drove the show, not the critics. Yeah, yeah. Well, so, and it's it's very exciting that it was just recently announced that Sense8 has been renewed for a second season. Uh, is there anything you want to say about that or that you can tell us about what's going to happen in season two? I really can't say anything at all about that. We're, we're in the process of pulling together all of our bits and pieces to get the thing mounted as fast as we can. Um, but we'd much rather have that revealed in the course of you know, showing the the, the the second season rather than talking about it. Sure, sure. So well, what do you think were the key factors in the show getting renewed? What like, Is it the... In, if it's an online show like this, is it like the, do they have the same ratings or is it social media attention or reviews? What are the factors that go into making that decision? I think it's a stew of all those things. I mean, Netflix doesn't release its figures, but 
what I've heard from them internally is that it's done ridiculously well for them. It certainly has been massively successful overseas, which is the big goal of theirs. They love the positive response the show has had. And internally, they really believe in the message of what we're doing. And, and they dialed into the, the social elements and the, the gender elements very early on um, to the point where you know, they've been our, our unflagging supporters and some pretty controversial stuff that's in the show. Uh, there were some behind-the-scenes business things that had to happen with elements that really were kind of outside our control uh, that kind of held up the, um, the renewal for longer than we would have liked. But the good thing was that when everything was finally settled and, and we turned to get the actual announcement made, it, it happened to coincide with the birth of the Sensei's on 8-8, so that ended up being you know a, a perfect situation for us. Yeah, yeah. Was there anything in the first season that you kind of held back on because you weren't sure how it would be received? And now that the show is a success, it's just like it's off the hook now. Everything, anything goes. We we showed right in front of your face, full frontal male nudity and babies crowning. Um, <laughs> the thing that is cool about the W's and myself, I, I would I would hope we, to an extent, is we're all kind of fearless. So. At no time, either in the writing or the shooting, did we say, are we going too far or should we pull back or how is this going to react? The moment you start thinking about what will the audience think of this, you're kind of doomed. You need to tell the story that works for you in the hope that someone else will buy into it. Mark Twain made the argument that within us, we, we contain all of humanity. We all want the same things. We all want to have a better life for ourselves and our kids. We want to achieve joy and happiness and love. And if you write for yourself and you are true to those emotions and those motivations, the writing will be true. People can identify with it. The moment you start second-guessing yourself and saying, well, what if the audience isn't like this or if we've gone too far, then the writing becomes false. So we never really even gave that much thought. We, we, we figured, we're going to do this. Let's just pull out all the stops and go for broke because we may get a second season. We may not. Who knows? But let's, we're going to go down. Let's go down swinging. Fortunately, it worked out. Well, so now going forward, if people like the show and they want it to continue into season three, what can they do to help make sure that we actually get a season three now? Well, let's make, let's make season two first. <laughs> Ultimately, obviously, you know, it comes down to the, the, the numbers and the reception for year two. So the, the fans have done their part. They stepped up and they offered their support and, and their kind words uh, for season one. Now it's up to us to make season two as good as we can make it. All right, great. So what do you think the success of Sense8 sort of heralds for science fiction on television? Do you think this will mean we'll be getting more science fiction shows in the future? Well, when we set out to do this, we were very cognizant of the fact that, as I said, probably you know, impolitely or not, not being very politic about it, a lot of television science fiction is, is either written by or aimed at guys who are afraid of girls. Um, it tends to be a genre, again, about the gimmick, the catch, or the mission, the job, and not as strongly oriented toward character uh, or toward the journey of it. Not, not all of them, but that tends to be the case more often than not, particularly when it comes to matters of sexuality and, and serious subject matter. Um, there's always been this weird dance between politics and science fiction of how much should one get into the other. And the way science fiction television is dealt with this was just to ignore politics and gender and uh, sexuality unless they get attached to some other race. 
you know, so that we come across as aliens who have a, 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 they can change genders. Isn't that amazing? You know, and that let them sort of explore general themes without actually making it about real people. We just figured, let's just go for, for broke, as I mentioned earlier, and make this about us going through these things. Let's, let's use this show to examine issues of, of sexuality and gender and privacy and, and politics and religion, not from some weird alien race, but us, ourselves, and show that it can be done and you can survive. So I, I, my hope is that having cracked that door open, we'll begin to see more, you know, that kind of mature level of science fiction being done elsewhere. You know, prior to a certain point, cop shows were not considered a franchise. They were considered niche programming of interest to those who liked police procedurals. They were never a big ratings thing, much as the networks tend to do science fiction. It's a niche programming for those who like that particular genre. Two shows changed that. The first, oddly enough, was Dragnet, which for the first time, he, as corny as it is in retrospect, showed cops that went on dates, had dinner together, got married, got divorced, and it made them human. And that show was spectacularly successful for its time, but it didn't quite make it a franchise. It still stayed a niche genre until one show kind of concluded that process, which was Hill Street Blues, which not only showed everything that Dragnet had done in other shows since then, but also cops of drug problems and, and, and drinking problems and issues dealing with sex and, and on and on and on. And suddenly, that show transformed you know the cop genre into a franchise. We're saying there were all kinds of shows that were opening up that category with more mature storytelling. And science fiction has had its dragnet moments. Um, but as I said early on, I was, we were hoping that this would be kind of like the Hill Street Blues moment to say to people who are even smarter and brighter and better writers than we are, you can go to places you thought you couldn't go. You can tell stories about topics and issues you thought you couldn't handle in the genre, not because you couldn't handle it personally, but because you thought there wouldn't be a, a reception for it. And that we will encourage people in other shows to really just, you know, not worry about writing down to kids, that this is a, a genre that can handle really adult stuff. I mean, what do you think about the prospects for good outer space science fiction in particular? I, I've heard you say that network executives have told you that the show has to be set on Earth or no one will care. Yeah, I'm not sure where that rule seems to have come from, but lately, the last few years, it really tends to become a big bugaboo for them. Um, the thing that if, if, we're, if the story's happening somewhere else, no one's going to care. But that's kind of a misnomer. I mean, when you're watching a dramatic series, about a family, you're really into what that family, you know, does to and with each other and where they're going to go. You're not worrying about the rest of the planet blowing up, you know. When you're watching a science fiction show about a family on another planet, you're not necessarily worrying about what was happening on Earth. You're watching, you're watching that particular family. So uh, they're, they're all, like we saw before with the critical reaction, there are all these rules and stipulations and perceptions about science fiction that are different from every other genre, particularly in the mainstream. You know, uh, 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 no one says of the mainstream police drama, well, you have to set it in New York because it happens anywhere else, no one's going to care about it. Yeah. Though science fiction television is a genre of rules and limitations in television, which for a, a, a art form that is all about speculation and possibilities and the broadness of human vision is counterintuitive. So 
uh, it's really it's a case of whittling away at those perceptions of what the genre is, which is this little box that they fashioned for themselves. This is what science fiction is. And if it's in the box, and it's good science fiction, but if it fits in the box, it's not. Because they don't understand that the problem isn't the fit, the problem is the box. Right. Why do you think there's such a difference between film and television in this arena? I mean, no one would say that nobody cares about Star Wars, which takes place in outer space, right? But somehow, if it's television, like Battlestar Galactica, you even have the actors saying, no, no, this isn't science fiction. Why is there such a disjunction there? Well, oftentimes they say it's not science fiction, but they want to sort of stray away from that because, again, it's perceived as a genre of limitation. So for an actor to say, we're doing a science fiction TV show, suddenly that comes with it all the, the, the limitations that are attendant upon that. Film tends not to worry as much about it because a movie is a one-shot. They don't worry about you coming back every single solitary week, whereas television says if they want to come back and have repeated viewings, then it has to be based on Earth. Um, that really tends to be the, the distinction. And then the good thing right now is that because film has really become very much um, brand-driven and it's hard to get original stuff out there, we're seeing a huge influx of directors and writers and producers coming from film into television, which is why you're seeing such a real, I think, uh, new golden age of television writing out there from, from so many bright lights that are working currently out there um, being fed by folks from film. So eventually that tide will go back to the direction and we'd like to bring back with them the lessons they learned from television and the film will have its, its own explosion again. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I had a bunch of people that want me to ask you about a Babylon 5 reboot or your adaptation of Kim Stanley Robinson's Red Mars. Is there anything you can say about either of those? Um, my plan is, is this year to, to finish up the script for a B-5 reboot um, and then hopefully get funding for it to shoot it next year. That's the plan, at least. Um, Red Mars, um, I turned the pilot script in. Uh, Spike likes it a great deal. Uh, it's on a short list of things that might go to the series. I'm working on the series Bible now. We'll get that done before we get too deep into Sensate. And um, we hope to have some news about that um, next month or two. Okay, so Joe, do you have any other projects you want to mention? Uh, anything else you want to let people know about? Um, working on Night Gallery, relaunch with Universal right now. Um, I actually have like three other shows in development, one or two which may actually go ahead which is kind of cool, but I can't really talk about them at this moment. We're also closing a deal right now for me to do a 10-episode um, adaptation of a very famous science fiction book, which um, uh, I hope to we can announce in the next three, four weeks. Um, I got two movies that I'm writing. Lots of things are happening. Last year was the busiest year I've ever had as a writer, and this year promises to be even busier than last year. And I just find that remarkable. It seems like, you know, a lot of writers in Hollywood, the average career span for the average TV writer is 10 years. Because by then, the town has figured out who you are. They know all your tricks and lose interest. And I've been writing pretty much nonstop television, then film, then back in television again since 1984. And that I'm still working now and even busier now than I've ever been is really kind of cool considering that I have no social skills whatsoever. <laughs> um, I think what happens is you hit a point where they realize they can't kill you. They can't put you in prison. They may as well keep hiring you. 
I somehow I've crossed a Rubicon at that point in my career now. So it's been very rewarding to have projects come my way that are just exciting and fun. And I'm having a blast. I mean, I, I'm working 16 hours a day, but I'm never tired by it. I, I get to get up every morning and do my love for a living. What's better than that? Yeah, yeah. Well, no, we certainly uh, wish you the best and hope you keep writing tons of more stuff. And really looking forward to the second season of Sense8. I, I just really love the show. And I just want to thank you, uh, Jane Michael Straczynski, so much for joining us on the show today. Thank you. My pleasure. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to J. Michael Straczynski for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to everyone who's given us five stars on iTunes, including Plover Girl, who writes, Great show. I really enjoy listening to my favorite authors talk about sci-fi. Highly recommended to nerds everywhere. So big thanks again to Plover Girl for that great review. Special thanks as well to Kevin Dahlstrom, who just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com geeks. And if you'd prefer to make a one-time or fixed monthly contribution, you can do that over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkertley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.